folks, back in 2013, I had my first taste of government. I was hired as the ghostwriter for Tin Pot Dictator. He wanted me to help him put together his guide to life. He was hoping to make up for his country's declining oil revenues with book sales. His first mistake was the name he gave the book. He called it the Little Fuchsia Book. I think he was going for something like Gaddafi's Little Green Book or Mao's Little Red Book, but his book's name was hard to remember and even harder to spell. Worst of all, his country's language didn't even have a word for fuchsia. They could say reddish, and that was it. That said, despite all of this, he did have some actual wisdom to share. His book was centered on ten laws of life, and there were gems like people are most easily manipulated when they think they are the bridge from a mythical past to a magical future. The guy really had a knack for humanity. He also paid very well. What he didn't have was the ability to market anything. In the end, his book sold, technically. He sold exactly one copy to my father. That, folks, is sad. Among the Tin Pot Dictator's many mistakes, he made one huge one. He had no social media presence. Now, I'm not trying to sell a book with this podcast, although you can go ahead and buy my books. Instead, I'm trying to become President of the United States. But like the Tin Pot Dictator, I have almost no social media presence. I'm not gifted on Facebook, proficient with Twitter, the least bit Instagrammy, and I can't dance on TikTok. I need to do better, and I need your help to do it. I'll tell you how at the end of this podcast. Now, this episode was pre-recorded due to a listening tour I'm conducting on the East Coast with a family wedding along the way. My friend Hillary said the tour will make people think I care. We'll see how it goes. Anyway, I'll be speaking in Springfield, Massachusetts on Saturday the 28th. Unfortunately, my alter ego will be leading that particular conversation, and it'll be a bit religious in content. The guy's a nut, and as I said before, he isn't funny. You're welcome to attend, I just want you to know what you'll be getting. Because this is pre-recorded, the current events are going to be a little stale. First off, and this is totally stale, I was just avoiding this one because it's a bit of a downer. Anyway, there was a terrorist attack on London Bridge a few weeks ago. The terrorist was there with a group of ex-cons and students at a rehabilitation conference. He killed two of the students. One was trying to talk him down, but he didn't get much further. A brief public service announcement for future terrorists. If you decide to go on a rampage, avoid places with Polish cooks and a large concentration of violent offenders. They might just cherish the opportunity to beat the crap out of you. What shocked me was what happened after the crap was beaten out of this particular terrorist. After he'd been disabled by the cooks and the cons, the police shot him dead in near cold blood. In a society with a rule of law, this shouldn't happen. But I think there's a reason it does. I believe the police and the public feel that justice will not be served if the law is followed. The London Bridge attacker was a perfect case, although the police at the scene probably didn't know it. He had recently been released from prison after being convicted of involvement in a far more serious plot. When there is a hole in the rule of law, people take justice into their own hands. What's the solution? Well, for this particular hole, it is increasing the range of available punishments. While I'm not generally in favor of the death penalty, 
After all, sometimes we convict the wrong people, and sometimes death is too harsh a punishment for what can be a complex crime. I think there are situations in which it makes good sense. I think we should make an exception. We should allow the death penalty for very clear-cut cases in which the victims have no connections to the killers. These are crimes against society as a whole, not personal disputes that went wrong. And if we don't deliver complete justice to these particular criminals, then there is a risk that the street justice that defines places like Venezuela and much of India will spread and eventually completely overwhelm the rule of law. In cities like Chicago, where 75% of black murders go unsolved, this must already be happening. Now, that was pretty depressing. So let's find some happier news. Hmm, let's see what we've got here. We've got over a dozen killed in a New Zealand volcano, dozens killed in an Indian factory fire, dozens killed on a flight to Antarctica, people killed in a hospital waiting room, people killed on a naval base. Ah, where do I have to look for a pick-me-up? Oh, yes, a single solitary man died. His name was George Lahrer. Now, George was responsible for the barcode. He didn't invent the barcode. One of his colleagues at IBM did. But he did invent the barcode scanner. If the barcode had existed without the scanner, a whole new class of human jobs could have been created. We'd be paying top dollar to people who could read these mysterious codes. But the scanner robbed us of that possibility. The scanner boiled everything in our world down to thin and thick strips. It sucked flavor and identity out of our world, and it automated a task that had required enormous amounts of human effort. I feel safe in saying that the barcode destroyed our world. Today, the average supermarket has 39,500 items. It was the barcode that enabled this mind-numbing profusion of cookie-cutter goods. But the barcode has had far more nefarious effect. It was the barcode that triggered the economic malaise of the 1970s as millions lost in our useless jobs. It was the barcode that filled our world with the incessant beep, beep, beep of checkouts. It was the barcode that made the role of cashier a mind-numbing proposition rather than a continual opportunity to hone one's arithmetic skills. It was the barcode that eliminated good jobs for those with only high school educations and led directly to a massive rise in the use of crack cocaine in the 1980s. It was the barcode that triggered the Iranian Revolution and the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan as those societies tried to come to grips with the enormous economic, political, and social side effects of this brutal codification of our world. Everything that's wrong in our world today was caused by the barcode. But I have to warn you, the work of the barcode is not done. Today we have self-checkout, GPS-driven tractors and warehouse automation. Delivery drones are on the horizon. So let me ask you, what happens when we reach a world in which all food can be grown in automated farms and all goods can be manufactured in automated factories and then shipped to us by drones based in massive automated distribution centers? What happens when the only jobs available are for those people so brilliant they can still outthink the computers? Is this a beautiful vision or a horrifying one? And is it a vision that is gradually becoming more and more real? For my part, I believe it can be a beautiful vision. Humans can experience the fulfillment of creation without the fear that so often drives us to work. But it could also be terrifying. We could seek to fill lives, empty lives, with crime, substance abuse, or even war. We could destroy our material utopia in fits of jealousy and self-hatred. We could relive the worst of the Garden of Eden or the best. So how do we navigate these changes? How do we deal with this onslaught of automation? 
Well, for that, you'll have to wait for future episodes. I do want to say, in case it wasn't clear, that I have nothing against George Lara or the barcode. He really redefined a lot of our world. And I hope and pray that his legacy will be a blessing for all of us. For now, we're going to go to the weekly story. Now, this one's a bit longer than most, but you'll survive. Two warnings. First, it uses a racial slur for Ethiopian Jews. It is quite intentional, but it can be jarring to those who recognize it. Second, although I write the stories, I can't actually speak in the voices of those who fill them. So just make believe I'm a socioeconomically challenged Ethiopian Israeli, and you'll enjoy this more. phone buzzes again. It's maybe the tenth time in the last hour. I pull it out of my pocket and glance at its shadowed screen. It's my father again. He probably wants me to come home. I slide the phone back into my pocket, unanswered. There's no moon tonight, and so the street is even darker than usual. A low glow from the megacity that is the Israeli coast hovers in the air, but it only allows vague shapes to be seen. There is no definition, at least in the darkness. Of course, the whole street isn't cast in that indiscriminate darkness. Stained concrete buildings, worn down public housing, are set back from the road. They have harsh-looking plazas in front of them, lit by the yellow glow of sodium lamps. During the day, parents sit on the broken benches while their children play between the weeds, and during the night, teenagers hang out there, ensconced in the safety of the lights. There are also streetlights set between the plazas. They are spaced far from one another. Young, cushy men, men like me, hang out below them. The lights serve as a sort of sign, an advertisement. They say, you can find trouble here. My phone buzzes again. I don't even bother to pull it out of my pocket. I just let it vibrate against my leg. I'm beginning to regret even having it. I thought it'd be nice, but it's beginning to annoy me. I watch an ambulance zoom by, its lights flashing in the darkness. Maybe one of the paramedics is like me, a cushy, struggling at the bottom of his own world. But even as that imaginary cushy drives by, I realize that I am even below him. I'm a street cleaner. I work from dawn till dusk in some fancy town full of rich white people. They barely even see me. I'm just a yellow jacket picking their trash up off the sidewalks in the mornings. That said, there are benefits to the work. Today I found the phone outside an apartment block. Somebody had bought it once. They'd spent good money on it, and then it was shattered abandoned and left out as trash. When I picked it up, it was almost like finding an old friend. The people who threw it away didn't clear its memory. I guessed a lock pattern, a simple U, and then I opened it, and I found pictures, hundreds of pictures of another world, of people playing in perfect parks, of restaurants, of large apartments with designer furniture, sparkling homes, and expensive art hanging on the walls. The phone is a window into another world, but not mine. My world is humid and hot and smells of rotting concrete. As the cars drive past, I feel their white lights passing over us. I imagine their drivers peering into the cones of light passed by their cars. I imagine them seeing the dark forms along the side of the road, and I know what those drivers are feeling as they see us. I see it during the day. Some are angry, although I can't imagine why. Some feel pity, which I understand. But most, 
Most feel fear. They are frightened of us. Even cushy drivers are frightened of us. Sometimes, just because I can, I glare at the passing cars. I have a little power, but I still have the power to frighten the privileged with only a look. A car pulls to a stop. I accept cash and deliver drugs. The man in the car is a regular customer. The street lamps are my signpost. They announce that I'm open for business. But I don't need a street lamp. The way I figured I could be wearing a suit and a tie and people would still think I'm a drug dealer. They'll never look up to me. I'm a cushy. So why shouldn't I do what they already expect of me? I belong here on the street. I fit. It may not be an exalted reality, but at least I fit. There's some comfort in that. My phone buzzes again. It's my father again. My father doesn't fit. My father refuses to fit. My father had been a big man back in Ethiopia. He'd been respected. He'd been important. And then he made the most fateful decision of his life, and he decided to come here. He came here, a helpless black savage stuffed into the back of an airplane. A black savage hoping to find the Messiah. And that's what he's remained. A helpless black savage. An uneducated and illiterate man. A monkey in a modern world. And yet somehow, he still hopes to find his Messiah. Even as the world squeezes him into his proper place, he refuses to accept it. He refuses to accept what he really is. He hopes somebody will eventually realize he's deserving of their respect. But the more he demands their respect, the less the world gives it to him. Even my mother divorced him. She was ready to move on. She left us all. But still, he reaches for the past. He doesn't seem to understand that the past is gone, and I hate him for it. He calls again. This time, I pick up. What, I ask, letting the anger into my voice. Why haven't you answered your phone? He demands. I consider lying, pretending my new phone wasn't working. But I don't care. I don't say anything. Come home now, says my father. Why? I ask, trying to draw out the word as a sort of antidote to his impatience. The elevator was broken. Your ayati tried to take the stairs. My ayati, my grandmother, is named Nikaiwot. And? Wuluwalem, my father says. Your ayati fell. The ambulance is here now. I need you to come home. Okay, I say, reluctantly. I end the call, walk out of the light of the street lamp, and head home. My ayati isn't like my father. She came here, physically, but she never left Ethiopia. In Israel, she is only a frail, lost, useless woman. She can do nothing, and she's never tried to fix that. She's only here because we are, and even that link is tenuous. She speaks Amharic, as does my father, but my sister and I don't. Like so many of our generation, we speak only Hebrew. And so she moves around her ever-dwindling community of elderly Ethiopians, and she watches her children and her children's children. She watches, but she understands nothing. She's not a part of our world. When I get to our building just a few minutes later, the ambulance is still there, but the strobes on top of it are off. And just then, I know what's happened. Mayati is dead. I slowly walk up the poorly lit staircase. Dark mold peers out from between the peeling pink paint on the walls. All of it is highlighted by the unnatural shine of the cheap fluorescent lights. Level after level I climb, expecting to find my grandmother around the next turn, but there is nothing. And then one story below my home, I come across the paramedics. I come across my ayati. 
She is laid out on a stretcher and covered by a sheet. The paramedics are just waiting now for the coroner to arrive. My father is standing next to them. He's crying, but I imagine in a day or two, he'll barely notice that the old woman is gone. She was just a shadow. I slip past my father. He looks at me, begging me for something, but I don't know what. Instead, I head into the apartment. I pull a bag of cheap bread out of the cupboard and some hummus from the refrigerator, and I start to eat. A minute later, my father comes in. You have to help me, he says. With what, I ask. Maybe they'll have forms, he says. My father can speak Hebrew reasonably well, but he can't read it. He likes to have me around when forms need to be filled out. And if you fill them in wrong, does that make Ayati more dead? He glowers at me. He wants something from me. Maybe comfort, maybe support, but he hasn't earned that. I just look at him as I absentmindedly chew my sandwich. I'm insulting him with my eyes, and I know it. A moment later, he turns and walks from the room. Just then, I get an idea. I shove my sandwich in my mouth and pop up from my chair. I've heard of old grandmothers sewing gold into their clothes. Maybe my Ayati had something valuable in her room. My father will be busy with the corner for at least a little while. This is my chance. I step into her room and quietly close the door. I flick on the overhead light, a bulb hanging from exposed wires, and then I begin to dig. It doesn't take me long to find what I want. In the closet, I find a small, ancient-looking wooden box. I open it, and inside, I see a small clay figurine. It is clearly a lion, but it looks like a child's conception of a lion. It has a rough, rounded shape, and it is painted in bright colors. Its whole body is surrounded by a thin iron exoskeleton. What looks like hammered threads of iron run up the insides and outsides of the legs, merging along the belly and the back, giving a sharp contrast to the softness of the clay. I close the box and slip out of the room. The next morning I'm up early. Mayati has been taken away by the Hevra Kadisha, the burial society. Her funeral will be in the afternoon, which leaves me the morning. As my father sits in our tiny living room, I slip out of the house, the small box hidden in my bag. There are art galleries on the other side of the town the side with the gleaming white towers. One of them, I know, specializes in Ethiopian art. Thirty minutes later, I walk in the door of the gallery. There's a saleswoman there. She's dressed in an elegant and perfectly tailored suit. She looks up at me. I can see the suspicion almost immediately. It is an Ethiopian gallery, but Cushy don't often come here. I want to sell something, I say. Her comprehension and relief are obvious. What? she asks. I pull the box from my bag and open it in the countertop. The saleswoman's eyes go wide. It is my grandmother's, I say. She gave it to me. She said it is hundreds of years old. She said it is a lion of Judah. Why are you selling it? Asks the woman, staring at the little clay and iron lion. I don't want to, I lie. We just need the money. The woman doesn't even touch the piece. She just looks at it, examining it from every angle. Again, I have to ask. Are you sure you want to sell this? She asks. I must, I say. That's why I'm here. Who would have thought selling something would be so hard? She looks up at me, assessing my expression. Do you have any idea what this is worth? I want to say yes, so she won't cheat me, but I really have no idea. To you, she says, it should be priceless. Everything has a price. She nods wistfully. Do you have any paperwork showing you own it? Paperwork? Why would there be paperwork? She gave it to me. The woman nods knowingly. Ethiopians aren't famous for paperwork. This is an old piece, she says. I don't know how old, but it is very valuable. 
I'm sure it has been in your family for a very, very long time. You really shouldn't sell it. How much convincing will this woman need? I need to, I say. My grandmother needs medical care in America, but we don't have the money. She gave it to me to sell. The woman's face shifts to pity, a familiar expression. People act most predictably when they think you are being the most predictable. Okay, she says, but I still feel that you should think very carefully about this. She thinks for a moment longer. Listen, I'll sell it on commission. If you come back before it sells, you can take it back. If not, then I'll take 5% of its sales price when it sells. How much will that be, I ask? I don't know, she says. But it ought to be worth more than 10,000 shekels. Wow, I think to myself. I shake my head to mask my excitement. I only wish I didn't need to do it, I say. She nods knowingly, although, of course, she knows nothing. Then she pulls out a form from under the counter. She jots in the details of our agreement. We both sign it, and then, carefully, delicately, she closes the box. She looks up at me. I hope your grandmother has a complete recovery. I hope so too, I say. And then a minute later, I leave the gallery. Ten thousand shekels is a lot of money. A few hours later, Mahayati is buried. There is a single kest there, shaded by a colorful umbrella and wrapped in his finest white robes. My father speaks briefly. He talks about their voyage together, about Mahayati's desire to be here, about her desire for her children to be here. And then he pauses, uncertain. I know what he's thinking. She desired it, but her children did not. It was all a mistake. But he doesn't share that thought. Instead, his voice just peters away into silence. The guest steps forward then. He states as if it is a fact that Mahayati must be full of joy now. After a hundred generations, he is blessed by not only seeing, but being buried in the land of Israel. It is a nice thought, but I hardly think she has an opinion on the matter. The funeral is short, the attendance sparts, and not long after, we go home. I imagine our lives will continue just as before. Mahayati was never really here. But my father has other ideas. He goes into her room, and then a few minutes later he emerges. He was sad at the funeral, but now he is distraught. It's missing, he says. My sister and I just stare at him. What? I ask. The lion, he says. What? My sister asks. Unlike me, she really has no idea what he's talking about. The lion of Judah is missing, my father says again. His eyes turn to me, and I can see they are flashing with anger. You took it, he shouts at me. Tell me where it is, you asamma. What? I shout back. What line are you talking about? My father tears past me and shoots into the room my sister and I share. I hear drawers being thrown open. My sister looks at me, but I just shrug. Ten thousand shekels is a lot of money. A few minutes later, my father emerges from the room. His eyes are full of fury. Where the hell is it? He shouts at me. Where the hell is what? I shout back. He glowers at me, and then he charges back into Mayati's room. He tears through her things, tossing them to the sides, as he violently searches for the little clay lion. Abba, I say, trying to sound calming, what are you looking for? A lion, he says, a little clay lion wrapped in iron. Why is it so important, I ask. It just is, he snaps. My sister and I stand in the hallway as my father rips through the apartment, searching everything but finding nothing. After all, there is nothing to find. He searches everything three times, and then four. Eventually, reluctantly, he begins to slow. Like an engine that has run out of gas, he gradually comes to a stop, and then, collapsing on the living room chair, he puts his head in his hands, and he just sits. Abba, I ask. He looks up briefly. There's resignation in his every move, 
It's gone, he says. It's just a statue, I say. He looks at me, shocked by my lack of comprehension, and then he says, It has been a part of us for as long as we have memory. We have kept it from generation to generation, and it was all that we had left of where we came from, and now everything is gone. In that instant, the fight that had defined him vanishes. The resistance to reality that had kept him together vanishes. In that moment, I know that 10,000 shekels is a lot of money, but I also know that it isn't enough. I may hate my father, but even I can't rip out his soul. My sister and I help my father to bed, and then I slip out of the house again. Within 30 minutes, I'm back at the art gallery. I step inside. The same saleswoman is there. Her face is pitying, but also seems to offer some kind of comfort. We sold it, she says. She gives a hint of a smile. In one day, we sold it for 15,000 shekels. I just stare at her. But I don't want to sell it. She looks shocked. But your grandmother? She died, I said. A heart attack. This afternoon. The funeral is tomorrow. The saleswoman stares at me. Who was the buyer, I say. Maybe I can explain and get it back. Some Americans, she says. They paid in cash. I have no idea who they were. Where were they staying, I ask. I don't know. What did they look like? Ashkenazi, she says, referring to European Jews. Do you have video, I ask? She does, and she shares it. I use my phone trying to find the faces online, but I find nothing. I print a copy of the faces. I visit the local hotels, but I find nothing. The buyers and the lion are nowhere to be found. I go back to the gallery, and the saleswoman hands me my 14,400 shekels. 14,400 shekels. The value of my father's soul. When I get home, my father is still in his room. Visitors come to speak about my auntie. But he stays in his room, getting up to greet no one. My sister offers to cut his hair, as is our tradition when we are mourning. But he refuses, and when she brings him food, he only picks at it. Days pass. Only when it is time to go to work again does he leave his room. But he is a different man. His eyes are sunken. His expression is dead. He isn't even angry at me. Weeks pass like this, his lifeless form moving in and out of the house, and then I realize what I must do. Somehow... I have to recreate the Lion of Judah. There's an art supply store at the mall. I go there looking for guidance and looking for clay. Another saleswoman helps me. She asks if I have a kiln. I say no. She recommends some oven-baked synthetic clay, but I know that it would never work. So I buy clay, real clay. I'll find a kiln when I need one. I don't go home. I can't let my father know that I took the lion. If he sees me trying to recreate it, he will know my ignorance was feigned. Instead, I go to another neighborhood. Not Ethiopian, but Yemenite. There's a small park there. I sit in a park bench set before a park table, and then I set to work, forming and shaping the clay. But the material slips through my fingers. It refuses to mold to my touch. It grabs into the dirt and grime that surrounds me. It rejects every effort I make. It will not be shaped. I can't seem to make anything, much less a childlike Lion of Judah. But I can't stop, so day after day I come here after my work and I pour myself into making a single piece, a Lion of Judah. Day after day I work to the point of exhaustion. I show up to work so tired that my boss thinks I'm on drugs. He doesn't test me though, because he doesn't really care. He expects me to be on drugs. But despite it all, I make no progress. It is like the clay is fighting me. It is like the clay is refusing my attempts to atone for my sins. One night I'm sitting on that bench. I bought 
batch after batch of clay, and I've ruined them all. I've achieved nothing. I am achieving nothing. It is so late that even the dogs have gone to sleep. I'm so tired that my thoughts seem to drift and merge and slip easily into the realm of nonsense. I can achieve nothing, and yet I have to keep trying. And that is when I hear the voice. Muluhalem. It says, calling me by my name. It is the voice of a woman. Her voice is soft and vaguely familiar. I just sit there, not understanding where the voice is coming from. Muluhalem, she says. I can help you. I hear the words roll off her tongue. They are smooth, comforting, beautiful, like stones being gently worn away by a river's water. I realize in surprise that she's speaking in a language I've only heard the Kesim speak. She's speaking Gies. And I understand her. Help me, I say. Somehow the same language comes from within me, the ancient language of my people. Throw out your clay, she says. I stand there knowing she's real, and I do as she says. What now, I ask. You need to find the right clay, she says. Where, I ask, where there is fresh water and soil mixing together. I begin to walk then. I feel as if a hand is holding mine, guiding me forward in the night. It leads me to a place I would not have expected. In my neighborhood, behind my building, surrounded by the smell of trash and a floating cloud of insects, there's a pipe. It collects the water from the air conditioners in the building. It deposits that water here, behind the building. The mud here is thick beneath my feet. The place is disgusting, but her voice reassures me, this is the place. And then I feel her hands again. They guide mine into the mud. I feel as my fingers are submerged into the goop. You feel that? she asks. And I do. I can feel the mud, and it seems to wrap around my fingers, embracing them. Pull it out, she says. And I do. The mud is there in my hands. Roll it in your fingers. I do. I feel it taking shape in my hands. Wrap it around your fingers. I do, and I feel it curve smoothly around them. Shape it into a ball. I do as she says. The material comes away from my fingers smoothly. Yes, says the voice. This is the place. There's a discarded bucket there. As she commands me, I gather more mud from the hole. I collect it in the bucket. What now, I ask. But instead of answering, I see the process in front of me. I must dry the clay, then crush it and soak it until it has the consistency of heavy cream. And then I pour the top of the thin slurry out and through a screen, and when that has settled, I pour out the extra water, remove the clay, smooth it out, and let it dry. Only then, when it is nearly dry enough, is it ready to be worked. Purification, she says. It is a process of purification. Only when the clay is pure is it ready to be worked. I feel it then in my hands, and I know what it must feel like when it's ready. What then, I ask? But the voice is no longer there. Over the next three days, I do as I was told. I dry and soak and process and purify the material. And then I try to work it, but once again, I can't. Once again, I can't form it. It cracks beneath me. It doesn't feel as it did in my vision. It isn't quite ready to be fashioned. I take the clay again and I process it again, drying and soaking and purifying, and again I fail, and again I try, cycle after cycle I try, and with each cycle the clay comes closer to what I felt in my vision. Month after month passes, summer passes to winter, and the winter to spring, and then I know it is ready, I know I can form it, but when I try to shape it, it resists me, it refuses my efforts, it does not allow itself to be formed. It is rejecting me, and I don't know why. I wrap the clay in plastic bags, saving it, because I do not know what else to do. 
Passover is coming, and I feel no closer to bringing life back to my father. Passover is as it always is, only smaller. The three of us sit together at our small table. Hard European matzahs adorn the center of the table. Eventually we reach the meal, and my father explains again how his family used to smash their plates before Passover and fire new ones fresh for the festival. He has told us the story every year, but there was excitement in his voice once. There was joy in the telling, but every year I ignored him. This year his voice is dead. He seems to be growing ever more listless. This year there is no joy, but this year I am paying attention. Do you remember how you did it, I ask? My father ignores me. Do you remember why you did it? He doesn't answer. Why won't you answer, I demand. It is then that my father settles his tired hands on the table. He turns to me, his eyes almost soulless, and he says, You don't deserve an answer. And before long, he's left the table. I mourn as I watch him go. He's vanishing from the world. I've chased him from it. I go to bed, but I can't sleep. And so in the middle of the night, I get up. I leave the apartment. I go to the bins in the back, to my hidden stash of perfect clay. The place is even more disgusting than usual. The refuse of Passover cleaning piled up in the bins. The insects seem to fill the air, but I ignore them. Instead, I just stare at the clay. My need has reached deep within me. Every part of me, every cell in my body is focused on that clay. I am willing to sit forever until somehow it takes shape before me. I sit there, hour after hour, somehow hoping to form it with my mind. And then eventually I nod off. Only then do I hear the voice again. Meluelem, she says. That musical, familiar voice speaks out, somehow overcoming the smell of the collected garbage. Yes, I answer eagerly. The geese flows off my tongue. Now you are ready. I feel the hands again. They guide me to the clay. And then, as I begin to work the material, I feel it finally move beneath my fingers. It flows around my fingers, obeying them. The voice speaks to me. It isn't the surface of the clay that gives it its form. The life of the clay is beneath, buried in the heart of the material. You have to feel that and work out from that. Only then can you give it life. But it takes time. It can't happen all at once. You have to build the foundation and then work from there. I look down at my hands and I see what I have formed. There is a simple plate there. It is rough and unadorned, but I have given it form. I look at it amazed at my achievement, and then I hear the voice speaking to me once again. In Ethiopia, those who could change the form of a thing were called Buddha. They were cursed because only the cursed would engage in such witchcraft. We Jews were Buddha. We were forced to work with iron and clay, and it set us apart. Am I cursed? I ask. But the voice doesn't answer. Instead, it simply says, I will return when you are ready. Ready for what? I ask. But there is no answer. The presence is gone. I come back the next night. The plate is dry and ready to be fired, but I don't know how to fire it. I can find a kiln, but I know that's not what's meant to be. I could look up directions online, but I know they will not work. Without their presence, I can't work the material. Without their presence, I won't be able to fire it. That is not the path I must be following. I simply have to trust that the voice will return when I am ready. 
I return to the clay. Day after day, week after week, I destroy and rewet and reform. I learn step by step. I form plates and then bowls and then pots. I form simple sculptures. Bit by bit, remembering the feel of her hands, I learn to work the material. I learn to work it from its heart, and I get better and better at my craft. All the while, my father is growing weaker. And then he summons us, his two children, to the table. And he tells us, listlessly, that he has been diagnosed with cancer, and that he cannot be cured. He has only weeks to live, and he seems not to care. I work even more furiously, hour after hour, day after day. I try to craft the lion, but I can't. And even if I could work the clay, I could never learn to work the iron before my father's time has passed. And then one night, as my father sleeps in his bed, fitful and weak, I see what I must do. I can't form the lion. The lion will not be mine. But I can form something else. My hands grasp the material, and I shape it between them. It flows beautifully in my hands. And with my hands I build a man with a square heart. Lions below the surface and above it stream out to every part of his body. They start as strong ridges in the clay, but they get thinner and thinner. I see it, and as it comes to me, I shape it in the clay. The lines seem fluid, changing, and yet completely permanent. There is life in them. There is life in him. And I know that, once it is dry, the presence will return. When I come back the next night, she is waiting for me, and once again she shows me what I must do. Together we build a fire pit with kindling and bricks. She shows me how, as the kindling burns, the object will tumble into the fire. She shows me how to protect it from that fall so it does not shatter. She shows me how the intense fire will set it. And she shows me how to capture the smoke so that it emerges a treasured black. I work as she speaks. Hours later, the object emerges. It is a small figure. It is charcoal black and it is beautiful. When it cools, I begin to paint it. Driven by an image in my mind, I write a word in Gies, Torah, or Bible. I paint it with a strong gold over the heart, and then I paint thin lines over the ridges that lead from its heart, but the lines grow thicker and stronger as the ridges slowly fade away. And then the little figurine is done. The vision is gone, but I don't need it, not anymore. I have formed a man from clay and blown the Spirit of God into it. I hold it in my hand, and I realize what it is. It is my people. The heart of my people is our Bible, but it flows from our distant past, our history, and it spreads within us, somehow growing stronger, even as our spoken words, the paint, overwhelm those that are written, the ridges. But the truth runs deeper than the form and the colors. Like the little figure we are drawn from a place of rejection, of ultimate exile, we are purified and recast again and again. Only we can be recast again and again. Because our spoken Torah, our spoken Bible, and our history were never captured and fixed and hardened by being set in books. We have kept our malleability and our Torah's life. Our words, person to person, generation to generation, shape a deeper and richer reality. And so again and again through our persecution, we have been molded from our very core. We have been molded by the challenges of our exile. We have been molded until we were ready. And now we are here in Israel. The fire has been lit, and I know that we are ready to come to life. We are ready to take on our ultimate form. But we must rest just right in the fire. Otherwise, as we tumble into the core of it, we will shatter. All of our history will be lost, and our form will be cast aside. I take the little figure in my hands. I carry it, the representation of my people, to my father. 
He opens his tired eyes. He sees the little statue. In that moment, for the first time since Mayati died, I see life and light in his eyes. Who taught you? he asks. And suddenly I know. I know the voice. It was the voice of Mayati, Nikaiwat. Ayati, I say. Ayati, he smiles. Nikaiwat. And then he translates her name, although I know what it means. She is the source of life. As he lays there, I ask what I had asked at the Passover Seder. Why do we smash the plates before Passover? My father smiles. That is the wrong question, Mulualem. The question is, why do we fashion plates for Passover? Why, I ask. He asks me to sit him up on his bed, and then he says, Mulualem, we smash our plates to avoid eating the slightest crumb left on them. This is because Egypt was the source of bread. We didn't belong there. He pauses to catch his breath. I just wait for him to continue, and then he does. Mulualem, the Ethiopians rejected Buddha, the making of new forms. So we also smashed our plates, so we could make new ones. We made new plates, so we could reject Ethiopia, because we didn't belong there, either. He pauses again, then he says, But it isn't enough just to leave a place. We need to remember we were in Egypt, and we need to remember we were in Ethiopia, because we can only find the future through the past. He squeezes my hand and then smiles once more. I sit then with my father. I sit with him for three days, and then the cancer takes him. Three years have passed. I am still a street cleaner. I still collect trash from the sidewalks of a rich Ashkenazi town. Most of them don't even see me, as if I'm an appliance. But among the others, some are angry, some pity me, and some are frightened of me. But they do not understand. They do not know that we are tumbling into the fire. They do not know that we are being crafted by God. But I know, and I know we must land gently, or else we will crack and be destroyed. And so when my workday comes to an end, I take the bus to a small river. Dozens of children, the children of my people, are waiting for me there. Together we will dig for clay, and I will tell them the story of our people. Together we will make dishes for Passover. My people have the power of Buddha. We can change our form, even if others never see past the color of our skin. In the first episode of this podcast, I said I wanted to run for president, not just for the sake of my policies, although I have plenty of those, but for the sake of people. Well, I didn't say exactly that, but that's what I meant. People have a desperate need for purpose, and that need is not being met. It isn't the job of government to supply that purpose, but a presidential candidate has a great big microphone. So in amongst the policy discussions, broader topics can also be broached. This story touches on one of those topics. Mulualem is part of a displaced minority. The reality may well be that he is part of a displaced and persecuted minority. People will and do argue about that, just as they do with the African American community in the United States. This story is not about that argument. Instead, it is about how challenged minorities deal with their reality. 
It is popular today for people to happily celebrate their persecuted status. The risk of doing so is that when we do this, we define ourselves by nothing greater than our oppression. In other words, we let our oppressors define us, and our bitterness ends up blinding us to our true potential. In the Jewish context, emphasizing our persecution is far less valuable than emphasizing what makes us unique and important. Even arguing about what that special ingredient is, and perhaps the argument is the ingredient, lifts us up. I call it a minority supremacy complex, and I believe almost any community can identify and realize just such a complex. As a masseuse told me once, every people thinks they are uniquely important. I just happen to believe that every people is right. So yes, we have to fight persecution, legal or otherwise. And yes, we have to create systems that help people in need and help them realize fulfilled lives. But beyond that, we have to recognize that success does not need to be defined in terms of wealth and power alone. Instead, we have to embrace definitions of success that are built around the richness of our human experience and the cultures we are a part of. Okay, enough serious stuff. Let's get really serious. While I believe millions of people are discussing this podcast, the actual number of listeners is somewhat lower. In short, I fear I share some attributes with that tin pot dictator. Perhaps the most important of these is that I, too, have almost no social media presence. So I need a social media coordinator. I need somebody sarcastic, bitter, power-hungry, and, well, overwhelmingly hopeful. 